Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily Pucks podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I am Teddy Schleifer. It is Friday, July 22nd. And today, Julia Alexander is here to talk about all things Netflix and whether the worst days of the company may be behind it. And later on, Alex Bigler, our marketing and partnerships chief, is here to talk about the feedback. It's Feedback Friday, and we take Puck listeners through the questions, the comments, concerns, and the answers that are going through Alex's inbox. She'll swing by. We'll hear all about that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. Hope you had a great week. We are joined today by a special guest who has some big news of her own. That would be Julia Alexander, who is a a Puck contributor turned mega contributor. She has a new private email that is going to be starting up called What I'm Hearing Plus. So if you uh, enjoy HBO Max or, or CNN Plus, this is What I'm Hearing Plus. And she is here on the pod, and she'll be on the pod a lot more. Hey, Julia, big week. Hey, yeah, thank you. That was an excellent breakdown of the contributing to mega contributor to like ultra contributor status. People should sign up for what I'm hearing plus, which I guess is going to be beginning next week. Is that right? Yeah, and it's basically going to complement Matt's incredible and informative and entertaining writing by going very, very deep into the reasoning behind the why and how our industry or the entertainment industry is changing with analysis, which includes some data, some hopefully entertaining writing, and basically just going into even more detail for those who are super interested in what's happening right now. So let's talk about that. Julia, the, the big the big news this week was the Netflix earnings. And let me just read you a few headlines and you tell me what this says about the world right now. Washington Post, Netflix loses nearly a million subscribers and its stock soars. New York Times, Netflix has lost nearly a million subscribers and breathes a sigh of relief. For folks who you would, you would think, you know, uh, uh, being in the red is not going to make you breathe a sigh of relief and not going to make your stock soar, tell me just basically how fucked Netflix has been over the last year and, and why it is that anyone would be happy when things are not quite going as bad as they might have feared. Right. I mean, yeah, to, to steal from Netflix's most successful show, it feels like for in the upside down, right? This is its Stranger Things moment um, through and through. I mean, there's two key points to really point out about why everyone, and by everyone, I mean parts of Wall Street are breathing this sigh of relief over Netflix losing almost, you know, close to a million subscribers. One, in its last quarter in Q1, Netflix projected that by Q2, which is the quarter that they just reported on, they were going to lose 2 million subscribers. So in fact, they actually did not even lose half as many subscribers as they thought they were going to lose. And the other big part of that is because they saw a pretty big pickup in about late May, early June into early July um, with Stranger Things. And I think that was crucial to the Netflix feeling of a success story right now. Because the idea with Netflix, if we look at other streaming services, when they have different quarters and they report new earnings and they therefore report their subscriber growth, they have the advantage of being able to land and expand in new regions. They get to say Disney's going to launch in New Zealand or in Australia or Disney's going to launch in a different country. And so therefore, there is a group of a base of subscribers that they can automatically acquire, not mm. just based on content, just based on accessibility and availability that wasn't there before. With Netflix, there's no other country or region to launch in. Like for Netflix, everything is based entirely 
on whether the audience wants to sign up. And that is entirely based on the content. So for Stranger Things, if you read through the earnings report, there's so many mentions of Stranger Things. For that show to really help slow the bleeding down and 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 generate not as much of a loss as they were projected to, because they, internally they didn't think Stranger Things was going to do as well as it did. They had big expectations, but exceeded expectations. So that's kind of the other success story for Netflix that people are looking at. There's a show that people want. They're willing to keep their subscriptions or they're willing to sign up for it again um, in different regions. And for Netflix, that's the story they're going to push forward as they go into the next quarter. Julia, I, w- I was I was reading your tweets and you made, you made a good point about Stranger, Stranger Things. You said Netflix is bragging about Stranger Things as a show that influences pop culture, which is obviously true. Netflix writes, the show catapulted the 1985 song Running Up That Hill to the top in the music charts. And you point out that actually the song was catapulted by TikTok. And, and Netflix obviously has done layoffs in marketing. And it makes me think about how much of Netflix's business is driven by these hit shows like Stranger Things, which you say, as you mentioned, is all over earnings. And I wonder if if your point here, which is that really TikTok is the thing, not really Netflix for boosting this show, makes you wonder just about kind of Netflix's, if there's just kind of an, an element of BS Yeah, and I think there's a few different charts specifically within the current Netflix earnings report that have you, at least had me, I should say, scratching my chin a little bit, scratching my head a little bit. That was one of them. And 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 they're kind of talking, they're bragging about this as a marketing strategy. And my issue with that paragraph was with the term strategy, because what they were saying Mm. is that, you know, we we have the strategy that if we create a hit show, it will create a cultural zeitgeist and that will bring in subscribers. It's like, that's not a marketing strategy. First of all, you laid off half your marketing team or not half. You laid off a large portion of your marketing team. So there clearly was no real strategy with on the marketing side. And second of all, by that definition of what they consider a marketing success story, some of their biggest films, according to their own self-reported numbers, which they publish on a site called Top 10. It's It's a Netflix thing. And they look at hours, you know, total hours viewed globally. Movies like The Adam Project and movies like Red Notice, which starred Gal Gadot and Ryan Reynolds. Like those movies, by that definition, would therefore create cultural zeitgeist moments and create these cultural trends that then bring in new subscribers. And that didn't happen with those films. So what they're talking about in terms of a strategy is having their biggest franchise, which was away for three years and then came back to a very, very anticipated audience that found a bunch of meme potential on TikTok. Like that's not something you can really strategize over. That's just good content programming. So credit to your content programming team. But then the more you go through this report, right, you kind of have these moments where Netflix is trying to find ways that they can show to the bears that what they've been doing is going to continue to work. So you have these moments where they're putting out this chart that's using tweets and they're comparing Stranger Things to Obi-Wan to Top Gun um, Maverick and saying, well, look how much more popular Stranger Things is on on Twitter Mm. compared to these other two. First of all, Top Gun Maverick's audience probably isn't on Twitter. If I have to bet who went to go, like my father went to go see Top Gun Maverick three times. He's not tweeting. Like He's just not tweeting, nor does he care about Stranger Things. But also, if we just look at that metric alone, what they're trying to say is like, we can put out a show that's not weekly. We can put out a show that's just as big as this theatrical movie. And actually, we still have the dominance. And you see that reiterated through this earnings report. Right? This report was really a defense of that what they're doing is working well and what they're doing will continue to work even with new competition, even with questions about whether or not Netflix should go to theatrical, even with questions about whether Netflix should explore weekly releases because its competitors are doing that. And there's an argument to be made that weekly is stronger for your better return on investment for your content. And this whole earnings report, to your point, is like earnings reports are always full of bragging about how well they're doing. But this is specifically structured to attack those bear questions and say like, no, we feel pretty good about what we're doing and we're not going to change things too much, which is 
an interesting point because they have executives within their own company who are calling for better theatrical releases and yep. potentially experimenting with the episode release structure. And so it's very disorienting, I think, which is maybe a good word to describe Netflix as a company right now. It's a disorienting time when they're trying to stay true to the Netflix strategy of simplicity, which is good. Like, that's a strong move for them. But also there's this moment of, well, the other companies that are doing this and also experimenting with what you've done are seeing stronger results. And just because you have one hit show, which really helps with your subscriber churn over this one quarter, what does that mean going forward if you don't have Stranger Things in that quarter? Like, what happens then? And I think that's where a lot of the bears are currently sitting, which is what happens in the next quarter and the quarter after that. Julia, um, I don't know if you if you caught uh, our, our pod at the beginning of the week um, with, with Peter and John. Um, they were sort of wondering about with the Netflix partnership with Microsoft and the introduction of, of an ad tier, what this means for the future. And obviously that, that was recorded before the earnings report, which show maybe the worst, maybe behind. But if I were to put you on the hot seat here and, and, and prognosticate, where Netflix will be in six months. Well, my biggest issue with the current earnings structure, and I ranted about this to Matt Bellany, is that when we look at Netflix compared to all the other ones, we look at all of them on a global subscriber uh, scale. And in my opinion, the most important metric in Netflix's earning reports over the last three to four quarters has been its UCAN region, which is the United States and Canada, which has seen a huge slowdown, and then in the last two quarters, consistent, meaningful churn. Netflix lost 1.3 million subscribers in the United States and Canada region alone this quarter. It tells us that the 70 to 75 million subscriber threshold in in the United States and Canada, their most profitable market, is probably where it's going to tap out. And that's a huge point because Netflix and, and Bulls thought for a while that it could get to 100 million in that region. It's probably not going to. And as they're losing customers, one of the biggest questions that Greg Peters, one of their executives, really danced around on the call was, do they think that with the lower priced tier that would incentivize some subscribers to going down to that tier instead of canceling? And he didn't really, he kind of danced around it. When I think about Netflix over the next six months, my biggest question is, can you slow down the bleeding in the UCAN region specifically? Can you introduce advertising that actually convinces some people to not cancel, but just go down a level? Or do you see this kind of consistent churn happening as more competition comes in? That's the biggest difference between the United States and Canada and every other region. And that's why I think when we compare Netflix to others, we have to look at that region. Because what we're seeing over the next quarter, this will be my prediction, is that you're going to see that churn basically translate to growth for all the other different streaming services, for Apple, for Disney, for HBO Max, for Paramount, whatever it might be. They're going to see an increase in subscribers as Netflix continues to go down. Once that starts to happen globally, now you're seeing a ripple effect across all of these different regions. And so I think when we look at, you know, Netflix lost 970,000 subscribers, they have 220. It's not the end of the world they lose that. But if they're consistently losing every single quarter or not gaining as much, and it's because those customers are going elsewhere for a better value proposition, that's my biggest concern. And so in the next six months, I think the question we'll all have is what is that one-to-one relationship between Netflix's churn or Netflix's slowdown in growth to the incremental growth or exponential growth of other streaming services? And what does that mean for Netflix's total potential addressable market for that company itself in the next three, four years? But I mean, they know this. They're bringing in advertising to increase revenue. They're, they're looking at gaming. And I think the Microsoft deal, although they didn't say anything about gaming, you team up with Microsoft for advertising. Microsoft's one of its biggest divisions is gaming. They want to get into gaming. Like, they're just yep, feels... Yep. Like there's simpatico there. 
So I think they can look at other ways to increase revenue. But in terms of actual subscriber growth in the United States and Canada region, if they tap out at 70 to 75 million as opposed to 90 to 100 million, that, in my opinion, is the biggest story. Julia, we are glad to have you here. For folks who are enjoying what they're hearing and are considering subscribing to Puck but haven't done pulled the trigger yet, this is a good reason to do it. Julia, thanks for coming by and we'll have you on more. Thank you so much. Welcome, everybody, back. We're joined by Alex Bigler, our, our marketing and partnerships chief for Feedback Friday, as it is Friday. Hey, Alex, how are you? Teddy, this is such a treat. I, I'm a such a treat. big time fan. Whenever you host the pod, I can't believe that Feedback Friday is synced up with one of these times. What a it delight. Did. Alex, I got to ask last night, um, you, we hosted our, our first party. Uh, reportedly, you were talk of the town. How was the event? Did it go as well as, as we all hoped? I would say, from my perspective, it went pretty well, except that I think in a couple of instances, I ended up the villain of the evening because a couple of people asked me if Teddy Schleifer was here. And if so, that is, that is I not swear, true. could I introduce them to them? And I said, I'm really sorry, but he's not. But I will tell him that you're a fan of his work. I am not joking about that. Well, I'm flattered, um, but it looked it looked fun. We we saw a few photos on Instagram. Um, I, I'm curious, or frankly, what what sort of feedback you were hearing last night at the party. But just tell me what you're hearing from subscribers this week. Yeah, I, that's a great question, Teddy. I got a piece of feedback yesterday that I'm excited to share. One of the members of our inner circle was I, I was lucky enough to be on a call with her and was asking her what her experience was, etc. And what she said to me was like really encapsulated a lot of what it is I think we're trying to do here. So she said, Puck is important to me because you hope that your bosses will tell you the real story of what's going on in your industry or in your company. But most of the time they don't. But Puck does. Puck does tell me what's going on in my industry and in my company, which makes it a must read for me every day. Wow. <laughs> it was amazing. It was so nice. Um, but to your point, you know, we get, I talk a lot with people and, and I am on the front lines, as you say, of, of why people are interested in Puck and what they're looking for. And I think that, you know, her quote kind of encapsulates what we're trying to do here and what people are looking for is the type of content and information and news that they're not getting elsewhere which is why I'm very excited to talk to you today because I just think your beat is super unique, super interesting, and you cover it in a really fascinating way. Um, Teddy, you know, we say he covers billionaires and we say he covers Silicon Valley, but it's more nuanced and important than that. What Teddy really does is think about the extremely wealthy in this country and in this world and how they're using their money and their power to shape the world around them, specifically through philanthropy and politics. Did I explain that well? Would you Thank you. That? No, that, that was that, that was that was beautiful. Um allow me to gallop on a on a high horse for a a, a few trots. Um look, I mean this is a extraordinary era of of capitalism, stock market be damned. Um and there's enormous winners that results um, from a bull market or just, you know, even, even in the macro view, like, you know, when you take the hundred year view, you know, there are, there are people 
who are are wealthy in an era or at a level that we haven't really seen since you know the Gilded Age. Um, and that isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just means there's kind of scrutiny and 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 responsibility and and questions of influence that befall people of that level of wealth. And I, I use the word influence there, not in like a pejorative sense. Like I think objectively, if you have that much money, you have a great amount of impact or potential impact on society. And and that's sort of the journalistic scrutiny that I think these people deserve. And it's not scrutiny in a bad way. It's scrutiny in a straight up, like, what are they doing sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, I think it's like a fundamentally public service beat because it tells you kind of at a high level, like whether or not the system is working. Um, and you don't really know if it's working if you don't really know what's happening. Did you choose this beat or did this beat choose you, Teddy? So I um, I came to this through politics. Um, I Fun fact for people who are, who are new to me. I, for a long time, thought I wanted to go into speech writing. Did a bunch of speech writing internships during college. Realized I was not, I'm not really like ideological enough, honestly. I don't really have strong opinions about the world. Uh, certainly I'm not partisan enough. Speech writing is not like the West Wing where you just, you know, walk into the president's office and, you know, tell him, here's exactly what you're going to say. I mean, lots of speech writing is taking kind of poll tested, focus group approved language and kind of shoehorning it into a f- 10 minutes of copy. But I thought I wanted to do that and then sort of realized that journalism was both, it's just more fun. Like speech writing, you have to obviously be behind the curtain, even in this era of like, where political operatives are sort of can become celebrities. I think I just have too big an ego uh, to be behind the curtain and sort of discover journalism through through that angle. But Sometimes I meet these like people who are my age, who are speechwriters, who are like, you know, work in the White House or for like top companies. And I'm, I don't miss it. I don't see their job and think that I wish that was me. Well, when I'm invited to do my next, you know, 20,000 person keynote address, I will, I will tap you uh, to help me with my speech. You know, on one of my first Feedback Friday conversations with Peter, I, I broke the news to him. I felt like a real, a real gumshoe that you have the ambition of visiting every national park in the U.S. This this is true. I asked Peter how long he thought it would take, and he thought that in five years you would not have completed, and I'd like your answer um, of how long you think it will take you to to finish this. Well, so for folks who are uninitiated, there are 63 national parks in the United States. Um, But the challenge, Alex, is that uh, because of big government, um, the number of national parks is increasing over time. So it is possible that you could finish it and then then unfinish it because they could add more. They added the new one in the 2021 stimulus bill, uh, New River Gorge in West Virginia, which is probably thanks to some pork project from Joe Manchin. But we'll let that slide. Um, I have been to 29. I am actually going to 30 this weekend. I'm going to Channel Islands National Park on Sunday. I am probably going to pick up Olympic and Mount Rainier this August. The problem is like I'm hitting the easy ones like I think there are nine in Alaska, but it's like you have to charter like an $800 seaplane to visit Gates of the Arctic National Park or something like that. And I, um, uh, you know, uh, I will try and pay for these in puck equity, but we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I do not think I'll hit all of them in five years. I think, I mean, I need to wait for me to have some kids, have some fourth graders, then you get to go to every park for free. So I'm probably, I'd say 15 years. 15 years. Okay, well, check back in in 15 years, you know, even though you're hitting the ease ones, you got to start somewhere. And maybe someone that you cover on your beat will take you with them um, on one of the the more difficult sounds, to reach. Sounds great. 
Teddy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me and having me on. Of course. Feedback Friday. Wouldn't be Feedback Friday without Alex Bigler. And Alex, have a good weekend. You too. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 